Today we're going to be continuing in our series. Actually, we're going to be finishing our series, Animal Encounters, which I've actually really had a lot of fun in this series. I think it's been um, edifying for me personally, um, looking at these different stories. And it was so cool because as I put these stories um, together, all these different animal encounters, and I was writing on my whiteboard, as I often do, to kind of visualize things, I wrote them out, and I wrote them out in an order that I thought maybe this would be a good order. And I wrote them out as I wrote them out in the order. I just felt the Lord show me that there was a flow to it that I hadn't seen when when creating the series. And we started with Snakes on a Plane, right? Super good title for a sermon. And it really was those Israelites in numbers who were bitten by these fiery serpents and... and, uh, God tells Moses to um, put up this bronze serpent on a wooden, basically, cross, this wooden pole, and that anyone who would look to it would be healed. So we began this series saying that it's all about looking unto Jesus. And then we talked about the role of leadership and how leaders are ultimately there to keep pointing us to Jesus, to keep pointing us in the right direction. That's why we have leaders. And then when we talk... We talked about destiny, and we we talked about calling, and last week we talked about legacy, really how we're living out the Christian life that is all made possible because of Jesus. And this week, my sermon title is Horses from Heaven, and we're talking about looking unto or looking for Jesus. Um, And we're going to be in 2 Kings chapter 2 today is our our main text, and we're going to be bouncing around. We're going to read... Um, a large amount of scripture, and I'm also going to summarize all of end time prophecy in a short period of time. So we have a large uh, text, uh, a large amount of text and a large concept to try to cover today. And so what I need from you guys is full attention (laughs) for this to be possible and for us to get good things out of it. I'm really excited to preach this sermon. I, I think that Way too often we, we shy away from talking in depth about the return of Christ. Um, there's a lot of theological differences within the church. There are different views on how some of this is going to play out and, and, and all of that. And so what far too many um, Christians do is go, well, he's coming back, so I, I don't have to worry about it. I don't have to study it. I don't have to think anything about it. And I would say that in some sense, you know, that sounds nice, but something about looking at prophecy is extremely faith-building. When I think about the things that really strengthen my faith, it's looking at prophecy. Those that have been accomplished, are being accomplished, and those that seem like, yeah, they're on their way, like it's going to happen soon. And so we're going to go through all this today, Um, but we're going to begin in 2 Kings, and we're talking about Elijah and Elisha. And we're going to begin 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 1. The scripture should be on the screen, so there's Bibles near you as well. All right, verse 1. Now the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind. There's no, like, text, like, before this that suggests that. And it's so casual in the way it's said it. It's like... You know how God takes people up to heaven in whirlwinds, right? <laughs> no? <laughs> like, if you're reading this for the first time, you're like, wait, what? 
Uh, let's keep reading. Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel, and the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, Yes, I know. Keep quiet. Okay, apparently this was just a well-known fact to the prophets. Like, all the prophets knew that Elijah on a certain day was going to be taken up to heaven in a whirlwind. Right? Now, I've heard this story ever since I was a kid, and I missed that part. I, I don't, I like, until I was studying it recently, I was like, wait a second. They all just knew. Like, this was prophesied. One of these prophets had said, Elijah, you're going to go up to heaven in a whirlwind of fire with horses on this day. And they knew the day. That's amazing. And and we're going to talk a lot about that idea of if you knew what your last day was, if you knew what the day was that you would be taken to heaven, how would you live, right? We'll we'll talk about that more later. But Elijah, we're not sure for how long, but he knew what his last day was and how he was going to be taken up to heaven. And so did all the other prophets. And so... It appears that on his last day, what he's doing is basically a goodbye speaking tour to these other towns, um, these places with students of his, these other prophets who studied under him. He's basically doing a goodbye speaking tour. All right. Verse 4. Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, as the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him the exact same thing. Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he answered, yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Elisha doesn't want to talk about it. (laughs) And he doesn't want to leave Elijah's side. He's been basically um, his right-hand man. He's been studying under Elijah for 10 years at this point. And... uh, Elijah had many prophets that he was obviously influencing in these two different places, Bethel and Jericho. There was a whole lot of prophets that were under Elijah's teachings, being, being discipled by him, you could say. And, but Elisha was the, was the main one. And they even recognized that, really, Elisha has a special relationship. One, thing, like one like little piece of advice I would love to give to Elisha and Elijah, if I could go back in time, was if you have such similar-sounding names, maybe go by your last name. <laughs> like, even as you read it, like, it's hard to, like, not get mixed up, you know? Okay, that's just a little. Just Stephen's advice to you, biblical characters, because they should listen to me. Uh, should have, right? Um, but he doesn't want to talk about it. He's like, keep quiet. Let's not talk about it. I know, like, but, but I mean, he's bummed out. He's sad. He doesn't want to leave Elijah's side when they keep going. Then Elijah said to him, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, as the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them. As they were both, oh sorry, as they both were standing by the Jordan, then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water. And the water was parted to one side and to the other till the two of them could go over on dry ground, till the two of them could go over on dry ground. 
When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you, because I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, You have asked a hard thing. Yet if you see me as I am being taken up from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. So just casually they split a sea, right? (laughs) Not a sea, but a river. And uh, they pass on, and the other prophets wait on the other side, and, and they go, they go, and, and um, Elisha won't leave his side, and Elijah's like, okay, what, what do you want? What, what is your request of me? And he asks for a double portion of Elijah's spirit. And he promises that if you see me being taken up to heaven, then you will get it. Well, is Elijah, or sorry, is Elisha asking, see what I'm saying? <laughs> is Elisha asking? for twice the amount of ministry as Elijah's ministry. Some would suggest that, and and oddly enough, there are twice as many miracles that Elisha performs than Elijah does. But I actually don't believe that is what he's asking for. I believe that term double portion is what we see throughout Scripture, which is the inheritance of the firstborn. Um, They would get the firstborn, if you had three children, the firstborn would get two, would basically get half, and the other two would get the other half. Um, you would get a double portion of the other siblings. And Elijah has all of these students, these disciples, these other prophets, and he's saying, I want to be like your firstborn in the inheritance of this ministry. I want to inherit um, more of your ministry like the firstborn son was. And oddly enough, he ends up having a huge um, ministry because he does see Elijah taken up to heaven. So let's continue. Uh, verse 11, and they went, sorry, and as they went, I can't talk today, and as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it, and he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them into pieces. And he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other, and Elisha went over. So he sees it in this amazing, like, amazing scene. We have, like, I can't even imagine what fiery horses and, and fiery chariots actually looks like. It must have been phenomenal. But they come down, they, they swoop up Elijah, and then they go up into heaven in a whirlwind. And apparently in the midst of that, Elijah's cloak flies off, and Elisha takes his cloak. And in a, in a certain way, that was representative of him taking on the ministry of Elijah. And that's then proven by the fact that he's also able to split this Jordan River. Um, and we have our, our main text today, which is horses from heaven. Um, it's a pretty cool text, and we know that Jesus is going to return on a horse. In fact, all the saints in his army is going to return on a horse. And it's this beautiful imagery that we often see in heaven, which is of horses. And horses 
really they represent royalty, they represent power, they represent strength, you know, white stallion or something like that. It's got this beautiful imagery. And uh, we know that Jesus is returning on a white horse. And so before we get to Jesus returning on this white horse, I want to talk about some end times prophecy and where um, we sit currently in all this and what has happened. So what I'm about to do is incredibly difficult, which is to summarize all of this. And, and I, I, I told Aaron my goal was to summarize all of this in less than eight minutes. You guys ready? Okay. In the Old Testament, there were prophecies about the Messiah returning. Ever since Genesis chapter 3, there was the prophecy of this Messiah who would come and crush the head of the serpent. And then throughout the Old Testament, everywhere you look, it's pointing to this Messiah. But it points really in two directions. It points to, one, the Messiah who would come as king, ruler, with power, with authority, with all glory, basically bringing heaven on earth. But then it also very often spoke of the Messiah being slain, being hung on a tree, um, suffering, coming as a servant. And more specifically, there are Old Testament prophecies that the Messiah would come on a donkey, and then there are Old Testament prophecies saying the Messiah would come on a horse. And this stumped the um, Jewish readers because they're like, is he coming on a small donkey or is he a donkito? Right? <laughs> I heard a pastor call it that, and I thought it was the best thing ever, donkito. Uh, is he coming on a donkito or is he coming on a white horse? Which one is it? Is this a, why is this, like, which one is it? Well, it's both. Now, we today read Revelations, and, and, and if you're confused by Revelations, understandably so, most people um, have a hard time with the book of Revelation. But um, the real key for all of prophecy is Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9 really solves the whole issue. In Daniel chapter 9, it talks about 70 weeks. And in the language, it's basically 70 periods of seven. And then it says there will be 69 that happen first, and then there will be seven that have, or the, the one that happens, this one week, the seven years. And so if you take the 69 and you times it by seven, and you look at the date, because Daniel says the date, uh, the date that Daniel is writing this to the day that Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkito, it's exactly to the day, the number of years that Daniel prophesies. Exactly to the day. So it's the 69 times 7, which Daniel prophesies in Daniel 9. We see Jesus riding in on a donkey, and it's during the Passover time of the year, and there are millions of people in Jerusalem, and what they do is they see him riding in, they say, Hosanna, Hosanna, they throw their cloaks, they throw the palm branches, which represents royalty, and they throw it before him, Jesus enters in, and that means that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah that happened on the exact day as prophesied, he was the suffering servant, though. What Jesus did, what he accomplished, was all of the prophecies about the suffering servant. And then Jesus promises to come back at the end of that last week of Daniel. Jesus, when he talks about end times, tells us um, to look at Daniel. He references Daniel. He says, as it says in Dan the book of Daniel. And so really understanding the book of Daniel is how you understand all of um, end time prophecy. So Jesus is coming back after the seventh or the seven years, the 
70th week. Now, in Daniel, there is basically an intermission between the 69 weeks and the last week. The 69 times 7 and the last 7. And in that, there was a bunch of prophecies about, that Daniel prophesied about the kingdoms that would rule over the Jews. And we see all of them but one. And these are to happen before the last seven years. And those were the Babylonians, which were prophesied. In Daniel's prophecies about the Babylonians are very, very specific. And they all came true. Uh, then the Persians, his prophecies about them all came true. Then the Greeks, and then the Romans. And then there is a last um, kingdom that he prophesies about, which would be a mixture between the Roman uh, and then some other unknown. And this would be the kingdom of the Antichrist. Now, what's really interesting, people are like, well, okay, like, there's been a lot of other kingdoms that have, that have happened since the Romans. There's been the British Empire. There's been, you know, the French Empire. There's been, we've got America. You know, we're pretty dominant in the world right now. What about all these others? Well, none of those have ruled over Israel. Because the Romans, um, is during the times of Romans that really Jerusalem was destroyed. And they were spread out through the entire earth. And for 1,900 years, there was no country of Israel. There, there was no people group officially in the world as the Israelites, as the Jewish people. And so that last kingdom is speaking of the last kingdom, the one world government that the Antichrist will set up. And when he sets that up, it'll be during the time that Israel is once again a nation, which happened not too long ago, you know, 60 years ago. And during that time, uh, the Antichrist will rule the entire world, and then he will basically take over Israel. And Jesus talks about this abomination of desolation. This Antichrist is going to basically claim he's God. He's going to blaspheme um, God in that way. And then the world is going to completely fall apart, as we know. And at the end of that seven-year period, Jesus will return again on a white horse. Now, it's a lot, right? It's a lot. But here's the thing. This, this crazy thing is that Israel became a nation again after 1,900 years, roughly. Like, do you understand how insane that is? And it was prophesied that it would happen, that he would draw them from the four corners of the earth, from all over, and that they would be brought together, and they would become a nation once again, and this would be a sign that the end is near. Like, I know, I know everybody's excuse is, well, everybody, Paul thought it was the end times. Everybody thought it was the end times. The writers of the Bible thought it was the end times. Well, yeah, the Jerusalem had not been destroyed, which had to be, Jesus prophesied would happen. And then it has to be, um, they had to be brought back as a nation and the temple has to be rebuilt. So they've been brought back as a nation and there are so many plans in place. To rebuild. They have the complete blueprints drawn up. They have all of the money. They've been finding all of the old artifacts. They have them all stored up. And the Jews are at any moment ready to rebuild the temple. The only problem is uh, where they want to build the temple, there is a mosque sitting there. Because that's the place that the temple was built. Uh, And they built a mosque on top of it. And so... The Antichrist is this one who's going to bring peace. And what part of the world do we know is the part of the world that needs peace the most? The Middle East, right? And the Antichrist will be able to create peace between the Muslims and the Jews, and the Jews will rebuild their temple 
And when we see this stuff start happening, somewhere in there, there's going to be a covenant made between the Antichrist and the Jewish people. And that covenant is the beginning of the seven-year period, the Bible says. And halfway through that, he's going to break his covenant, claim to be God, and basically kill two out of three Jews in the entire world, and then also kill all the Christians that are left, and all of that. And that Jesus will come back. And it says that if Jesus didn't come back, everyone on the world would die because it's going to be that bad. Like, he is going to cut it short. And if he didn't, everyone would die. Which makes me think there will probably be a lot of world um, warfare going on with, like, probably nuclear weapons and things like that. Now, it's all crazy, right? So, the, basically, the question is, are we going to be around for this? And you have two main schools of thought when it comes to end-time prophecy, um, and then you have two kind of outliers. So most evangelical Christians believe one of these two, and then you have two kind of outliers. The, I'll briefly go over those two. You have what's called amillennialism or amillennialism, which is that there is no millennium, which we'll talk in about a second. Um, basically, after the seven years of tribulation, the Bible says that Jesus will reign for a thousand years. They believe that everything in Revelation is completely figurative, and it's just an all a representative of things that are going on in the world right now. And then you have post-millennialism that we have to basically perfect the world and rule the world as Christians in control of the world for 1,000 years. And once we basically perfect the world, then Jesus will come back. It's basically the opposite of what the Bible says. So both of those, I call them outliers, they really have no biblical support. Um, In fact, they create a lot of contradictions um, and a lot of problems for people who are going to try to read the Bible honestly. So you have two main ones, which are both fall under the category of premillennialism. That the seven years of tribulation will happen before the 1,000-year reign. And Jesus will return before the 1,000-year reign. He has to come back and then reign for 1,000 years. That's called premillennialism. Then you have what is called pre-tribulational and post-tribulational. And that is where we get to the rapture. How many of you guys have heard about the rapture? All right. Uh, you ready to be raptured, brother? <laughs> you know, I don't know if you ever heard pastors say that, but uh, so you have this weird word called the rapture. Can somebody tell me what they think the rapture is? You get taken up, right? In a whirlwind. Well, that's why we're talking about it. It's very similar to what we're reading about Elijah. He was taken up. So you have this idea called the rapture, which the word rapture is not specifically in the Bible, but there are terms in the Bible that are used that we kind of categorize as the rapture, being taken up. Um, one was standing there and the other one is gone. There's the, the, these terms in the Bible where it talks about suddenly the Christians are all taken up and that they're um, brought to him at, at his coming, right? So you have post-tribulational, which means that Christians will be around during the seven years and probably most of us will be dead because the Antichrist will kill us, behead us. Uh, But those who are still alive will be taken up into the clouds, transformed in a moment of time as he is coming back and will come back with him. And with all the other dead saints, um, we will be raptured if you happen to be alive at those seven years. The question really biblically isn't whether or not there is a rapture. The Bible pretty clearly teaches that there is this moment where he takes up those who are still on earth and he basically sucks them up into heaven, transforms them in a moment of time, and then 
get to come back with, with Jesus. It's really a matter of if it happens at the beginning of the seven years or at the end of the seven years. And I have been on both sides of that fence at different times in my life. I could argue either one really well. Um, and I often do in my head, even, as I, as I do lean um, towards pre-tribulational now, um, I can still argue every one of the verses with a post-tribulational argument. But let me tell you why I believe we will be raptured before this. Uh, one reason is um, in Revelations 3.10, it has this promise that God will provide a way out from the tribulation or for those who are faithful. It also um, is interesting in Revelations, um, the first three chapters, it's about churches that are on earth. And then the rest of the book of Revelation is really about, basically from chapter 4 throughout, it's really summarizing the things that will happen during the seven years. And the church is not mentioned anywhere on earth during all of those chapters. The only time that the church is mentioned after chapter 3 are in scenes in heaven, but not ever on earth. Now, it talks about some elect referencing um, some Jewish elect people, the 144,000, and things like that. And there will be people who I believe get saved during this time, uh, the seven years. People who maybe were on the fence about Christianity and all the Christians disappear. They go, I guess it's true. <laughs> but, and so they'll be around during the seven years. Um, I believe that's a really good argument as, as to why um, the church is not anywhere mentioned on earth during the seven years reading Revelation. And so that's a good argument. The other argument is, is it often seems, again, that this next return is talked about in two ways. It's talked about as this thing that will happen like a thief in the night, right? Like a thief in the night, he's coming. No one's going to know the day or the hour, right? And it's like very surprising, shock and awe. Uh, nobody knows. You, you need to always be watching because he could return at any moment. It talks about it in that language. But then Jesus, in, in really Matthew 24, 25, in these areas, he talks about the abomination, of, the abomination of desolation. And he says, when you see this happen, basically you know exactly how many days you have left. Well, which is it? Is it a thief in the night? Or when we see the Antichrist do this thing, do we know exactly how many days? Because it says it will happen right in the middle of the three-and-a-half-year period. So if you see him standing in the new temple in Jerusalem, proclaiming to be God, you know exactly how many days you have numbered. And it's, it's very similar to how I believe we would be confused, very similar how to the Jews were confused about the coming of the Messiah when they were looking at it. Is he coming on a donkito or a white horse? Is he coming as a suffering servant or as the ruling king? Is he coming as the lion or the lamb? And so I think when we see the language that's talked about in the New Testament, if I'm going to let you, let you know you can read Luke 21, Mark 13, 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, and all of both the revelations if you want to get caught up on this stuff. And I can also give you some good resources if you want to study it some more. But when you look at it, it seems like he's talking about two parts. And that's why I believe there is this rapture, which is speaking about um, that portion when it's coming like a thief in the night. Nobody knows that we're being taken up in a moment of time. And then also... At the end of the seven years, we're returning with him, and he's on his white horse. 
coming to bring judgment upon the earth and reign for a thousand years. So I believe it's talking about two separate events on each side of the seven years. Um, I don't normally do this, but it's a small group today. Any questions on that before I move to some stuff on horses and, and Elijah? Yeah, so, post, so post-trib um, argument would be that, and I used to argue this, that when it's talking about thief in the night and the surprise, the shock and awe that happens, that's for unbelievers. And any believer with a brain should not be surprised. <laughs> and, and I do believe that for those who get saved during the seven years. They, they should not be surprised by that final coming at the seven, end of seven years. So that was the argument, is it's not two separate events. It's two separate people looking at one event. So that would be the argument. The thing that makes me kind of switch is the fact that in Revelation, he's not talking about the church unless it's in heaven, which is really interesting because at the first three chapters, he can't stop talking about the church. And then we see the church in heaven in chapter 4, I'm assuming after the rapture. And then the rest of the time is talking mostly about Jewish stuff and unbelievers and the trials that are going on on the earth, the Antichrist, etc. So it seems like the church it is not on the earth. There's also some indication that the Antichrist cannot, um, I, I can't remember what verse this is. It might be one of those Thessalonian ones. The Antichrist cannot start doing what he needs to do when the Holy Spirit is there. It talks about he who is keeping him, he who is withholding him. And where does the Holy Spirit reside on the earth? Well, he resides in the believers. And so it is suggestive that um, the Antichrist cannot establish his kingdom and, and do all of these things while the believers are still on the earth because we have the Holy Spirit in us and we are what is keeping him back, which is pretty interesting. Um, because the Holy Spirit came in, in the new sense. He's always been around. He's omnipotent and omnipresent, you know, like the rest of the Godhead. But in the sense of power, movement, and, and power within the world, the Holy Spirit came with, at the beginning of the church, which was at Pentecost, right? And then he would leave at the end of the church age, which would be the rapture, which allows the Antichrist kingdom to be set up. So that would be the other reason. So those two reasons right there would be why I probably switched. Any other questions? Of Revelation? Uh, John. Yeah. Yes, I do believe that that was the last uh, prophecy in the sense of literal words of God from the Holy Spirit. I believe we have prophecy today in the gift of prophecy, but not in this extent where it could be taken as scripture. Um, all right. So I want to make some points about horses, and we're going to read some, some text about that. Now, I think one of the best things for us to do would go ahead and turn to Matthew 24. And uh, as we're talking about horses, the theme is horses. I want to read this verse. Um, one thing that horses do is they could easily get spooked, don't they? Um, and we're talking about horses, and I believe Jesus does not want us to be spooked by his coming. He does not want us to be startled by it. Continually in Scripture, it's telling us, be awake, watch, keep your eyes open, be ready. And so he really tells us how we should live accordingly. 
we're going to read in Matthew 24, verse 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one taken and one left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have left his house to be broken into. Therefore you must also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. We'll stop there. Coming at an hour you do not expect. And it seems like he's even talking about the faithful master who would stay awake. You still don't know what hour he's coming. And the, the um, command for us is stay awake, be alert, live in such a way that you're ready for his return, which could happen any moment. You could be standing in a field or grinding at the mill, and all of a sudden you're going to be gone. You'll be taken up to heaven. I believe this is pretty clearly talking about the rev- uh, the rapture which will happen before the seven years of tribulation. Now, I can't remember what missionary it was. It was some famous missionary, um, and he was asked, if you knew that the Lord was coming in three days, what would you do? He said, keep my schedule. That's pretty powerful. Um, I don't feel that most of us um, live our lives in such a way where we can answer that. What would you do if the Lord was coming in three days? Keep my schedule. Are you living in such a way that if you knew he was going to return, you're like, what I have planned is the best possible things for my life, the things that will glorify him most? It's a challenging and convicting question, and one that we should ask is, are you ready for him to return at any moment? Are you living in such a way that you'd be happy that he would return and find you doing what you're doing? And I think oftentimes... We would, we would have to say, no, I'm not ready for his return. I'm not quite there yet. I, I would have to change some things on my schedule. I would do some things differently. I would stop putting off some of those conversations with people. I would stop doing that sin. I would spend more time with my family. I would worry less. I would, whatever it may be, right? You would, you would make some changes in your life. And I think the command from Jesus is we'll make those changes. Which brings me to my next point, which is, um, instead of a spooked horse, we need to be a race horse. Amen? A race horse. Hebrews 12, uh, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin. You have yet uh, to resist to the point of shedding your blood and... Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? 
My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Do not be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are an illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be out of joint, but rather be healed. I absolutely love this passage in Hebrews. He's telling us that we need to live, to run the race, to have this life where we're running for that goal with Jesus in mind, knowing the type of life that we should live. And immediately after giving us that exhortation, he tells us that you have, to re- you have to let go, release the things that cling so closely and weigh you down. Get rid of the sins that are holding you back. Get rid of the things in your life that are taking up too much time, that are taking uh, your attention from things of God. Get rid of anything that would hold you back from running this race. If you um, are running a race, Let's talk about cars for a minute. What do they do? They strip down the car, right? Any unnecessary weight is removed so you can go faster. To run this race, we need to get rid of any extra weight, any extra baggage so that we can run. We can be, instead of spooked horses, we can be horses that are race horses, that are racing for this goal of the calling that he has set before us, which we've talked about a lot this last few weeks, is the calling, the good works that he's prepared for you. God has things he wants you to accomplish, things he wants you to do. Um, You have purpose for your life. But sin and everything else is just going to weigh you down. You have to drop it. You have to let it go. You have to move forward. And that really brings me to what it all comes down to which is that of the war horse, right? That final return, which I believe um, instead of being Elijah and seeing the horse come down and pick him up, we're going to be on our own horses right behind Jesus in this scene. Let's turn there, Revelation 20. Actually, sorry, Revelation 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, And behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diamonds. Or, and he has the name that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. 
and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of the heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We have this beautiful image where it's all final. It's like this final return where we're going to be in white robes. That's representative of the church. We always talks about the church in heaven being in white linen, fine linen on our white horses returning with him as his children, as his heirs, as his army to take back the world from Satan, to destroy all that is evil and to reign on this earth for a thousand years before he establishes the new earth and the new heaven. It's all pretty amazing. And it's what we are all ultimately living for. We get caught up in everything else. And I think that if we were to take passages like this um, seriously, take the command from Christ to watch seriously, to run the race seriously, to know that we have this heavenly um, identity and, and take that calling seriously, we would live different lives. I know that I would. You know, I, like everybody else, I get sidetracked. I get caught up. You forget what life is actually about. And here's the thing. We don't know the exact day or hour right now. We don't have that uh, exact moment in time specified like Elijah did. Elijah knew exactly when the Lord was coming for him. Exactly. And we don't have that. But it doesn't matter. Jesus has commanded us to live in such a way that we're expecting him at any moment. At any moment. Now, you guys ever, you guys ever uh, see any of the Babylon Bees posts? It's like, Christian version of the onion. Anybody? Okay. It's like really funny satire articles about Christian things, right? Uh, some of them are like way too real, like way too real. Like they they made like they're talking about you know uh, basically a bunch of prosperity books being dropped off. For orphans in Africa, (laughs) you know, really like that's way too like hard. Like, (laughs) but one that I like found hilarious, and I think it's really relatable, was it says, "Young teen begs God to not come back before his wedding night." (laughs) Right? Like, he's like, uh, "Please God, don't come back before I get to experience." You know what? Uh, And I think that though, like, that is like this maybe more extreme version, I think all of us wish God would wait until we could accomplish one thing, until we could experience or accomplish this one thing. And here's the thing is, if that is how we view the return of God, it's something that you hope um, will come later, then you're not living your life to the fullest right now. You're really not. Because 
for us to really understand how glorious it is. It shouldn't be like, oh, can, can we put that off so I can experience more things now? No, it's like, this is the greatest thing of all, to be in the presence of God, to be transformed, to be made like Him, to have all of sin and all of evil gone forever, to be with Him perfectly. Like, this is the best thing ever. So you should be like a child. Like, can we go to Disneyland today? Like, why do we have to go next week? Why can't we go today? You look at the authors of Scripture They all talk about the end as something they are so hopeful for. And that was so powerful for the early church because they didn't live nice, cushy lives in America where Christianity was so easy. They lived lives where Christianity meant that you had to draw lines in the sand. It meant that you lost your family. You sometimes lost your property and you often lost your life. And it's why you go to places across the world not cushy American Christianity. You go to places across the world where they are facing persecution and all they want to talk about is Jesus is coming soon. Jesus is coming soon. We're living for the day when Jesus is coming. They care a lot more about the end times than we do because they're so excited about it. All of these other things in life that they could hope for are so secondary in comparison to being with God eternally. So church, I I hope that we can walk away and say, you know, in times to come that I would keep my schedule if I knew the Lord was coming in three days. I would keep my schedule. And so if you aren't able to say that today, I'll challenge you, go home and make a list of the things that you might need to set aside and the things that you would like to accomplish so that you could say, I'd like to keep my schedule if the Lord's returning soon. Because he is. He's returning soon, church. I don't know how soon it could be now. Or it could be... I have a hard time imagining it being more than 100 years, personally. Um, just because of the things that it talks about, the whole world seeing certain things in Revelation. says the whole world will see it. That wasn't possible until, like, Facebook live streaming. <laughs> like, and live TV. You know what I'm saying? Like, they, like... He, like I, I remember pastors 10 years ago saying, like, we have live TV. Like, do you realize that that makes some of these things in Revelation possible, that the whole world can watch it at once? And I'm like, do you realize that we have Facebook live? Like, they, like everyone, like, will have it in their social media. Like, Jesus coming from heaven. Like, the whole world's going to see it. Like, oh, my gosh. Like, what is that in the sky? <laughs> like, the capability for all of humanity to be destroyed in a seven-year period. If God didn't cut it short, all of them would be destroyed. Well, until nuclear warfare, that didn't seem very possible. But now we know, like, if nuclear warfare got real bad, I mean, we would, the world would be contaminated. All of the crops would die. All of the water would be poisoned. Everyone would die. <laughs> there are a lot of things that were not possible before that are possible today. And then more than that, Israel is a nation again. If you don't realize how big of a deal that is, how... Um, important that prophecy is, then you are, are really missing out on what God wants to show you in Scripture. And it's an amazing faith builder. Like, man, is the Bible true? Uh, Israel just became a nation. Like, I mean, 1940s was not that long ago when you think of the grand scheme of time. Like, you think of the 
fullness of the entire earth's, uh, I'm losing words here, but the, how long the earth has been around, 1940, is not that long ago. It's not that long ago. You realize that? Like, this is huge. Maybe it was before we were born, but that, that means we are in these final days. Things are coming close. So let's live with purpose for our lives. Let's live knowing that Jesus is going to return at any moment. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, there are so many things that we maybe need to set aside. There are so many things that we need to do, knowing that you are returning soon. And maybe it seems a little bit overwhelming to think about those things. But God, you have given us your Holy Spirit and your grace. And it's by your strength that we can do those things. It's by your strength that we can have victory over sin. It is by your strength that we can accomplish the good works that you have prepared for us. It is not by our strength, Lord. So, Lord, I know that I am weak, but in your power I can be strong, God. Lord, you love to take our weakness and turn it into your strength. To display your strength. To use it as an opportunity for people to go, wow, that only could have been God. Lord, so that's what I'm asking for myself and for every person in this room, Lord. The things that need to be cast aside, Lord, I pray that it would be done so in a way where we don't get any credit and we say, that was the hand of God working in my life. Lord, I pray that the things that we um, feel called to accomplish, the people that we feel called to speak to, that we would do it, and there would be power in it, Lord, where we would go, it wasn't me, but it was the power of God that did this thing, Lord. Lord, I pray that we would begin to be a church that maybe could start to answer um, that question with something similar to, we would keep our schedule. Lord, what a convicting question convicting answer that is. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.